Before getting into the last part of Ezekiel, I'd like once again to remind you and to remind ourselves of the context and particularly how the Bible hangs together. What is the storyline behind the Bible? Why do all of these books come together? Why were they chosen? And how did they come to be put one against the other? I'm afraid the first two slides, as Tom reminded me, are far too small. Um, but nevertheless, I will explain them. And first of all, we are going to see once again that after the united monarchy, which lasted just 120 years, from 1050 to 930 before Christ, after that initial period of the united monarchy, um, Solomon's son, Rehoboam, took over as king of that united monarchy, but that lasted for a very short period of time. During Solomon's reign, he was a bit megalomania, and he built many, many buildings. And that had an incredible impact on the people of Israel in terms of a tax burden. And when Rehoboam came to the throne, the people came to him and requested, can you re relieve this tax burden upon us. Rehoboam consulted some of his young advisors, and they said, no, increase the burden on the people. And so that's what he did, and the result was that the kingdom divided into two. And so we have the northern kingdom, ten tribes in the northern kingdom, and the southern kingdom, two tribes, Benjamin and Judah. So as we go on to the next slide, we'll see the Northern Kingdom from 930 to 722. Northern Kingdom was regularly at war with the Southern Kingdom. Not only that, civil war, leadership struggles meant that this Northern Kingdom was constantly in upheaval. Of the 19 kings that reigned from 930 to 722, 19 kings that reigned, this is what the Bible tells us about them. I quote, they did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So of the 19 kings, 18 did what was evil, and one of them began well and ended badly. And despite the repeated warnings of the prophets, Israel did not listen, and so in 722, the Assyrians came against Israel, and it was a brutal regime, and they led the Israel, the northern kingdom, into captivity. The Assyrians were probably amongst the most brutal uh, warriors in the history of civilization. The second, uh, the 20th century has nothing to be jealous of as regards the Assyrians. They were amongst the most cruel, both physically and psychologically. It was a brutal, horrible regime. And yet God used that people to chastise his own people who had sinned less than the Assyrians. But further down the line, God judged also the Assyrians. And then we come to the Southern Kingdom, they reigned from 930 until 
587 uh, before Christ, and they didn't take heed to all of the warnings to the northern kingdom or to the fact that the northern kingdom had been deported into exile. Again, Isaiah, Jeremiah preached to the southern kingdom, to Judah and to Benjamin. Jeremiah for 40 years. And during those 40 years, uh, he was not listened to. He preached to the kings, to the prophets, to the priests, uh, to the princes, to the leaders, to the nobles. But nobody paid any attention to what he was saying. And finally, therefore, in 587, the southern kingdom was also led into exile. And once in exile, God raised up Ezekiel. And he had a ministry over 20 to 25 years to those who were in exile. He was exiled in 597, and he began his public ministry five years, six years later in 593. Last week, I reminded you that the basic message of all of the prophets, the, the minor prophets from Hosea right through to Malachi, the major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, the basic message was the same. They denounced sin, they warned of judgment, and they promised restoration. And this was basically the message of Ezekiel to the exiled community. And that's what we looked at last week. Um, he had three themes, preach the word, preach the grace of God, and preach the glory of God. Preach the word of God. The first 32 chapters, it was basically denouncing sin and warning of judgment. And then from chapter 33 through 48, it was the glimmerings of hope, preaching grace and proclaiming or preaching glory. In those first 32 chapters, therefore, God was portrayed as a jilted, cuckolded husband. And the languages I mentioned last week, both here in Ezekiel, but also in Hosea, is language which is raw, uncommon for God. It is at times blue language, as God describes what it feels like to have an unfaithful spouse. Now, many of the themes that we are looking at in uh, Ezekiel are what I would call biblical theology themes. And if you would like to pursue this whole idea of God as a jilted husband in Scripture, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, I would recommend very highly to you this series in biblical theology, and this one by Ray Ortland, God's Unfaithful Wife. If you want to understand just what it means to God to have an unfaithful spouse with all of the pain, the suffering, the feeling of jealousy, the hurt, the anger, which at, at times turns into hatred, this book is well worth read reading. God's Unfaithful Wife. But now we come to the second theme, Preach the 
grace of God. And so we move ahead, 12 years after the exile, and a messenger comes from Jerusalem, and he announces to the exiled community that Jerusalem has capitulated and that the temple has been destroyed. And this is what we read in Ezekiel 33. In the twelfth year of our exile, in the tenth month, on the fifth day of the month, a fugitive from Jerusalem came to me and said, the city has been struck down. Up until now, the exiled community was hoping that they would be able to return to the land, to Jerusalem, to the temple. They could not imagine that God would allow Jerusalem to be destroyed, and even less that the temple should be burnt to the ground. But now, that is just what has happened. And so, Ezekiel's ministry from now on changes. There is a glimmer of hope. We come to the message of grace. And this is what Chantal read to us a little earlier on. So you, son of man, I have made a watchman for the house of Israel. Whenever you hear a word from my mouth, you shall give them warning from me. And you, son of man, say to the house of Israel, thus have you said, surely our transgressions and our sins are upon us, and we rot away because of them. How then can we live? This is God who says to them, As I live, declares the Lord, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways, for why should you perish or die, O house of Israel? The message changes. Ezekiel is reminded of his role as a watchman. He is one who is watching out and warns Israel of their sin, and yet at the same time warns them of God's desire to save. I have recently read another book, which I recommend to you very highly, called uh, uh, Meek and Humble of Heart. It's by Ray Ortland's son, um, the one who wrote that book, Dane Ortland, Meek and Humble of Heart. And in the book, he reminds us that God's natural inclination is to love and towards salvation. His unnatural inclination is towards condemnation and judgment. When Scripture describes God, or when God describes himself, he is described as a God who is love. God is love. Nowhere in Scripture is it said, God is angry or God is judgment. His natural disposition is that of love, which leads to salvation. His unnatural disposition, because of sin, is condemnation, which leads to judgment. And this is where Ezekiel's message now changes, where he puts the emphasis on love and salvation. 
And we read again in chapter 33, Come and hear what the, Lord, what the word is that comes from the Lord. And they come to you as people come. And they sit before you as my people. And they hear what you say, but they will not do it. How strange. How strange. We have come to the point when Ezekiel changes his message, where God reminds the people that his plans for them is for salvation. And when he calls them to repent, turn back, turn back, repent. And they come to listen to Ezekiel, but they will not do what he says to them. If you listen to the text, this verse that we have just read carefully, what it is really saying is that the people come regularly to listen to Ezekiel. They watch him as he enacts out parables to them. It's as if it's a, a kind of a TV show, a, a, a theater. And they come for the next episode. And for 12 years they have been coming to listen to Ezekiel. And they listen week after week, month after month. They listen, but they will not do what Ezekiel says to them. This makes for especially solemn reading. I hesitated to put in what I've put in this morning to my notes, but I'm going to try and transpose the situation because what does the church look like if we were to take this verse today? They sit in their usual places. They sing the same songs. They practice the same Rituals. They listen to what the preacher has to say week after week, but in the final analysis, it makes no difference. They listen, but they will not put it into practice. I would venture to say and dare to say that that is generally speaking, generally speaking true of much of Western Christianity. And it reminds us, doesn't it, of what James says in his epistle when he warns us be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and forgets immediately what he was like. I think we all need constantly the grace to have a lucid and honest look at ourselves. Do we listen? And in listening, do we take to heart? And in taking to heart, does that change our thinking processes and our behavior? Because the Word of God is powerful. It is mighty. It is like a two-edged sword that goes right through and pierces into our conscience. 
The word of God is like what it was to the Thessalonian believers. They received the word gladly as it in fact is the word of God that acts in their lives. My words are not important, but the word of God is important. This is God's word, God's inspired word, which is powerful and acts. Do you allow it to act? That being said, it's a solemn note, but that being said, we immediately go on to chapter 34 in Ezekiel, where we have one of those great typological uh, messages of Scripture, which I mentioned last week, God as a shepherd. First of all, in chapter 34, God condemns the shepherds, the, the kings, the princes, the priests, and the prophets who are preaching false messages. He condemns them. And then he presents himself as the shepherd par excellence. And let us read what Chantal left, uh, read a few minutes ago. I'm not going to read the whole section once again. Just underline how God puts the emphasis in this section. I I myself will search. I will seek out my sheep. I will rescue them. This is God speaking to his people. Huh? I will bring them out from the peoples. I will bring them into their own land. I will feed them. And the next slide. I will feed them with good pasture. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep. I myself will make them lie down. I will seek the lost. I will bring back the strayed. I will bind up the injured. I will strengthen the weak. I will feed them in justice. This is a major theme throughout Scripture. God as the shepherd of his people. And this is the second book I recommend to you, again in the same biblical theological series, Shepherds After My Own Heart. And this book traces the theme of biblical theology is different to systematic theology. Systematic theology is you take everything concerned, the Holy Spirit, salvation, sin, humanity, Jesus Christ, and you put it into one combined unit. Biblical theology traces themes through the scripture. It is progressive. And it goes from a simple explanation to a more complex explanation as we go further along in Scripture. It's like maths. When you teach maths to a young child, you may start teaching addition with sweets or chewing gum or whatever, and you add one sweet. What is one sweet? You already have three in your hands. What is another sweet? It's four. You take one away, and you have a crying match. But you teach mathematics in simple terms. When you get into uh, uh, high school, you don't teach mathematics with sweets or with chewing gum. And when you get into university, you don't treat, uh, teach mathematics in the same way. It is progressive in complexity. And biblical theology takes themes like God, the cook-holded husband, or God, the shepherd of his people, right from the beginning of Scripture, right through to the end of Scripture, 
with its increasing complexity. And that's why it's interesting to discover and to study these uh, themes. After God has presented himself as the shepherd by insisting on that role, he then says something which is extraordinary. And we read, And I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them, and he shall feed them and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David shall be prince among them. I am the Lord. I have spoken. And quite obviously in this passage, uh, he is not referring to the physical David, but to great David's greater son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, he will become the ultimate shepherd, which immediately calls to mind Psalm 23, but even more so, John uh, 10, uh, I am the good shepherd that gives his life for the sheep. So this image runs right the way through chapter 34, God as a shepherd. Up until now, in chapter 33, the people have not listened. God presents himself as the good shepherd. And then in chapter 36, there is a presentation of the gospel. Not everything is said, but some of the essential truths of the gospel are mentioned. And I'll mention three of them as we go through the next few slides. First of all, we read that it is God's initiative in salvation. And verse 22, Therefore say to the house of Israel that thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name. One of the inescapable truths that we find in Scripture, from Genesis through Revelation, is that salvation is God's initiative. We can ask many questions about that, and people have done so over the centuries. But there is an inescapable truth. God takes the initiative. Why does he do it? Because he is God, and he has the right to do it. In the Garden of Eden, we have the very first message, gospel message, in three words. Where are you? God took the initiative to find out Adam. It wasn't Adam that was seeking after God. God took the initiative. Where are you? And as you go, once again, through the Bible storyline, it's always God who takes the initiative. He chose Abraham who was a perfect idolater in Mesopotamia. He worshipped other gods, according to Joshua 23. He worshipped other gods. And God put his hand on Abraham and said, Abraham, you are to become the father of all believers. Why? God's choice. The same with Moses. Even though initially he thought maybe he could be a useful leader, uh, as he was brought up in uh, uh, Pharaoh's court, but God sent him to the back corner of the desert for 40 years, and then in a burning bush, Moses. Oh, no, not me, Lord. Certainly not me. Moses, you're the one. David? Well, when um, Samuel went to visit David's father uh, to anoint a new king after Saul, what happened? 
Well, all of his sons were brought before Samuel. And Samuel thought about the first one. Oh, that's the one. Look at him. He's a military guy. Tall, handsome. This is the one we need. God doesn't look on the outward appearance. But he looks on the heart. And all seven sons were presented to Samuel. And Samuel said, no. Not one of them. Oh, there is the, the younger one. He's out in the fields. The shepherd of the flock. Go and get him. He's the one. Or Ephesians 1, in him, before the creation of the world, God chose us to be before him, holy, irrepro irreproachable, having predestined us in love to be his adopted children. Before the foundation of the world, he chose us. And then somebody else who said this, I've forgotten whose name is. You have not chosen me, but I have chosen you. You see, this choice, this initiative of God is like a red thread throughout Scripture. So that's the first thing that we find in chapter 36. The second thing is that salvation is God's work. Cleansing, purification, transformation is God's word. And this is what the Scripture reminds us. I will sprinkle clean water on you, you will be cleansed. I will cleanse you from all your defilements and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Not only is salvation God's initiative, but it is totally and utterly God's word. There is no self-help in this gospel. There is no trying to do better in this gospel. To transform a person is utterly and totally God's work. And on the cross, what does Scripture say? On the cross, Christ became sin for us in order that we might become righteous in Christ. There was a transfer that took place because of the work of the cross. God transformed, uh, transferred my sin onto Christ. And on the cross, Christ was looked upon and treated as if he was an adulterer, a thief, a murderer, a homosexual. He was looked upon and treated as sin in order that God might look upon me and treat me as righteous. And the famous words of Christ on the cross it is finished. It's God's work from the beginning to the end. And finally, God reminds them in this 36th chapter that everything to do with salvation depends upon repentance. And so we have, then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good and you will loathe yourselves for your iniquities and your abominations it is not for your sake that I will act, declares the Lord God. Let that be known to you. Be ashamed, confounded for your ways, O house of Israel. Not everything is said about the gospel, but there we have three essential truths. God's initiative, 
God's act of salvation in conversion and transformation, and the fact that it all depends on repentance. Chapter 36 is followed, curiously, by chapter 37. And in chapter 37, you have two parables that illustrate chapter 36. And one of them is very well known because it has given rise to um, a Negro spiritual. And in chapter 37, we find Ezekiel in a vision. He is transferred into the valley of dry bones. And so we have that spiritual dem bones, dem bones, dem dry bones, don't we? Where flesh and life and breath is given to that which is dead. But that's an illustration of chapter 36. And so we come to Ephesians chapter 2, which reminds us that it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing, the gift of God not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So those chapters 33 through 39 of Ezekiel introduce a ray of hope and the message of grace despite the rebellion of the people. But we have there the essentials of the gospel message. God as a shepherd, God giving great David's greater son as the ultimate shepherd, and salvation being proclaimed to the nations through Israel. And then we come to the final part of Ezekiel, chapters 40 to 48. We are now in the year 572, 25th year of the exile. And here, the emphasis is on the glory of God. Last week, I, I alluded to those uh, tragic incidents uh, in chapters 8 to 11 of Ezekiel and the vision that he had when he was transported to Jerusalem and there he was in the area of the temple and when he saw all of these abominations going on in and around the temple. It was a horrific vision. And then in chapter 11... We are told that after that vision of these abominations in the temple, the glory of God leaves the temple. God's patience has finally run out, and he is abandoning his people. And this is what we read. And the glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city and stood on the mountain that is on the east side of the city. Now, if you know anything about the geography of Israel, you know that this mountain on the east side of the city is the Mount of Olives. Uh, and the Mount of Olives, uh, yeah, that is the mountain on which when our Lord returns, uh, he will come in incredible glory. So there's a symbol here already, isn't there? So the glory of the Lord leaves the temple by the east gate and on the hill on the east of Jerusalem. But we are now 20 years further down the line, and we read in chapter 43 of Ezekiel that God intervenes again by grace, and his glory returns to the temple. Then he led me to the gate, the gate facing east. And behold, the glory of the God of Israel was coming from the east, and I fell on my face. And as the glory of the Lord entered the temple by the gate facing east, the Spirit lifted me up and brought me into the 
inner court, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. Obviously, for this exiled community, there was here the promise of a return to the land. And many were encouraged by this message from Ezekiel. But in no way can this vision of Ezekiel be an illustration of the temple that was built again in Jerusalem after the return from exile. No, this vision is really a signpost to the future, to the end times, and to the culmination of all history. However, we are now dealing with one of the most difficult passages in the whole of Ezekiel, one that has fueled many debates uh, amongst the believing community. And it all turns around the temple in these last chapters. I would suggest to you, and this is not uh, an imposition, it is a suggestion, I would suggest to you that in approaching these final chapters of Ezekiel, we are asking the wrong questions. But when we read these chapters and we read of the measurements of the temple, how long is this, how long is that, what color is this, what color is that, we're asking the wrong questions when we ask, when will this take place? How will this take place? Where will this take place? And most of the debates over the last 2,000 and odd years have been around those questions. How, when, and where will this temple more books have been written on that than the essential question that should be asked. Why is the temple going to be created? What is the purpose of the temple? What is the symbol of the temple? So instead of asking how, where, and why, we should be asking uh, how, where, and when, we should be asking the question why? Why? And the answer is in the text. It's to demonstrate the glory of God. And if we get tied up with the wrong questions, uh, we're going to miss the essential notion of these chapters. Again, again, in biblical theology, we have to read the storyline. In the Garden of Eden, God was with his people. The tabernacle was God in the midst of his people. The temple was God in the midst of his people. And so we come to the epistle to the Ephesians, which reminds us, and may God dwell in your heart richly. What is the glory of God? Well, the glory of God is best defined, in my opinion, by the very last phrase of the book of Ezekiel. In the name of the city, from that time on shall be, the Lord is there. We can think in terms of the glory of God in abstract terms, but here I believe we have something extremely palpable, concrete. The, the, the glory of the Lord is the presence of God in the midst of his people, in all of its fullness, in all of its majesty, in all of its power, it is God's presence in the midst of his people. 
There where two or three are gathered together in, or more accurately, for my name, I will be in the midst of them. This is ultimately glory. God in the midst of his people. And the ultimate indication of this truth uh, we find in the last book of the Bible in Revelation 21. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. And the name of this place from now on shall be, the Lord is here. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. And I saw no temple in the city. Why? For its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty and the Lamb. We no longer need a temple. We no longer need a structure. We no longer need a building because a symbol has given way to the reality. The glory of God is what the temple always symbolized, the presence of God. Fullness, majesty, power, and magnificence. And so, let me conclude. William Farrell, Guillaume Farrell, fiery preacher from Gap in France, introduced the Reformation to Geneva. And on May the 21st, 1536, the General Council of Citizens decided to live according to, and I quote, the most holy gospel law and the word of God. That's just uh, 50 or 60 kilometers from here. Geneva decided in their constitution to live according to the most holy gospel law and the word of God. In the 18th century, barely 200 years after the Reformation, the church had moved away from the word of God, from the message of salvation by grace, and from a preoccupation with the glory of God. So much so, there's a well-known philosopher, son of a pastor, Jean-Jacques Rousseau. He wrote this concerning the venerable company of pastors. I quote, One neither knows what they believe, nor what they do not believe. One does not even know what they pretend to believe. And this is 200 years after the Reformation. In the 21st century, in fact, in July 2009, I was with a, a group of people, pastors from many countries around the world, who were meeting together in Geneva to celebrate the 500th anniversary of the birth of Calvin. And we had many meetings in the cathedral in Geneva, very uplifting meetings. And a general request was made to the uh, Conseil de Genève for us to be able to hold a final service, a worship service, at the wall of the reformers to celebrate Calvin's birth. Geneva known as Calvin's city. And so this request was made and it was refused. 
And we later found out why it was refused. Because on the Sunday, the date that was officially to mark Calvin's 500th birth date, permission was given to gay parade to meet in front of Calvin's wall. So, in many ways, the message of Ezekiel is extremely relevant today. It was brought back into focus uh, in the time of Ezekiel. It was brought back into focus uh, in the first century. It was brought back into focus in the 16th century and many other times since. And it needs to be brought back into focus today because this is the message of Ezekiel, which is the message of the reformers. Preach the word of God, all of the word of God, sola scriptura. Preach the grace of God, sola gracia. And preach the glory of God, soli deo gloria. Ezekiel's message is a message of the reformers, and it's a message that we truly need to come back to today. Let us pray.